Here we go. Well, hi, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for the beautiful prayer and welcome all the new people. We're really super happy that you joined us. Um, so I, before, you know, before I really dive into the, to the, uh, the rest of the chapter, because we started it last time. So I'm about halfway into the doctor's opinion. I just wanted to, um, you know, kind of give like a little bit of a, a background a little bit for, for this particular meeting and for what really helped me recover. Um, and it's what, what we really hope to provide here. Um, I recovered when I was given accurate information, good information with clear direction in a loving and supportive environment, right? And those are the, those are the things that help people get well. Um, you know, you can have good information, you can have clear direction, but if it's delivered with, you know, with an iron fist, it doesn't seem to make contact. What, what we really get is that we need the language of the heart. We need to know that, you know, we're, we're here among people who care, right? Um, but if we're just among people who care, you know, my parents cared about me, my, my friends cared about me, and they didn't have accurate information for me. So we really need that, we need the combination of it. And um, for those of you that are here tonight and are new, that's really, that's my intention. That's what I hope to provide. The most accurate information, clear direction, uncomplicated direction. Um, and I hope to deliver it in a way that's palatable, that, that is interesting, right? That draws you in. So last time we went through, first of all, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And, um, you know, I, um, the doctor's opinion is, was what we're studying right now. And, and last time we got in about half, you know, we got halfway. And when I started, um, really the, the outline for this chapter was, um, was that I'm a distinct entity, meaning I am different from other people. I have, um, I'm, you know, I'm not like normal men, right? That's what we're told. We are not like normal men. And the doctor's opinion really goes through and makes it very clear all the different ways that, that, that we're separate from other people, if you have this. Um, and so I have like a list here as I've gone through, I've kind of gone through and created the list. And I'll, you know, as we go, I'll sort of recap. And then at the end, I hope to like list all the things again. Um, and, and the reason that we do that, the reason I do that is um, there's going to be a lot of things that the big book is going to tell me, especially those directions. Remember I said like accurate information and clear direction. Well, if I don't have this disease, it's not accurate information for me. It's like, you know, it doesn't pertain to me. And some of the directions, although they're clear and they're simple, they're they're pretty out there if you don't have this. There, there are things that, you know, if you didn't suffer, if I didn't suffer from this and you were gonna tell me that I had to do certain things and live my life a certain way, I would, I'd be disinterested. But because I am distinct and the doctor's opinion spells it out, that interests me. I want to know you know, specifically what to do so that I can get over this thing, so that I can get well. Okay, so 
the last time we had gotten up to, and I was um, right up to really uh, this idea about the phenomenon of craving, which is where we left it off the last time. And that, um, that it is unique to us, meaning normal people experience cravings. However, their cravings get satisfied as soon as they start eating. And mine is the opposite. I actually don't really experience a craving. I might experience the mental obsession, but the actual craving doesn't happen until I ingest it, until I put it in my mouth. And that's when the craving starts. Because for normal people, every bite they take, the desire for more gets diminished. But because I have this disease, every bite I take, the desire for more actually gets increased. And that's the definition of what it means to have a craving. And because it's an allergic response, meaning a response I can't control, there's nothing I can do to dial back that craving. Once I've eaten those foods, I can have all the willpower I want, but it's insufficient. Just the same, think about it, like an allergy to shellfish. If I was allergic to shellfish and it caused my throat to close up, I could wish all I want to hold off that response, but I would be powerless to do so because it's an allergy and, and I would have no control over it. And it's the same thing with this. So that's really where, you know, we kind of left off at the last time. And now we're gonna jump into XXVIII, and we're going to talk about frothy emotional appeal. Um, it says here, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. So if you're going to appeal to a compulsive overeater from an emotional standpoint, it never works. It doesn't work. You know, the only thing that works for someone with this disease is when another compulsive overeater shares their experience and that their solution is grounded in a power greater than themselves, then and only then something can happen. So, you know, and, and to understand really what is frothy emotional appeal? Well, anytime that anybody appealed to me, tried to get me to take some action, tried to get me to do something, about my eating and my, really for me, my obesity, because at the height of my disease, I was over 300 pounds. And there were a lot of people in my world who cared about me tremendously. And they appealed to me from an emotional standpoint. And it never worked. It never worked. In fact, what it did was it made me resentful. It made me annoyed. It made me embarrassed. It made me have all these feelings and all those feelings kept me right on eating because that was my go-to. I experience, you know, I experience emotions as hunger. That's what it would be me for me, that I would get upset, I would feel embarrassed and I would need to eat over it. And, you know, so I, I've got this example, I've got many examples of frothy emotional appeal, but I've got one that really, for me, um, it always like, it gets me right here. 
And here's the, here's, here's the story. And this is true. And this has happened to me many times over, but this one in particular is the one that really, this paragraph really speaks about it. My, um, my children were babies at the time. They were really little. And my mother-in-law came to the house and my husband wasn't home. It was just my mother-in-law and the kids and I. My mother-in-law um, is not overly emotional. It's just not her way. She's not, um, she's not like one to shed tears easily or get all, she's pretty tough. She's like a tough kind of stoic lady who's softened through the years. But my mother-in-law came to my house and she sat me down at my kitchen table. And by the way, at the kitchen table where I couldn't fit in the armchairs, right? That's where this disease had me, that in my own kitchen, I couldn't fit in half the chairs, right? So I'm sitting in a chair without arms. My mother-in-law says to me, she starts telling me about how when she was a little girl, her mother died. And that's true. She lost her mother, she was a young girl. And she started telling me how it was very difficult for her to grow up without a mother. It was very sad. She always longed for her mother and every happy occasion, she felt a little bit sad, like something was missing. And then she began to tell me and she said, you know, and that was really bad. That was really sad and that was really bad. But then I saw it happen and she said to her sons, because my mother-in-law, not only did she lose her mother at a young age, but her husband died when she was in her early thirties. And my mother-in-law was left with two little boys, my husband being one of them. Um, and she said, you know, what was bad was that it happened to me as a little girl and then I saw it happen to my boys. And it's the worst thing in the world to be a child. You know, so my mother-in-law said it was the worst thing to be a child to grow up without a parent, longing, always longing for a parent. And then my mother-in-law looked at me and she said, tears in her eyes, she said, and I'm looking at you, Melissa, and you're gonna do this to my grandchildren. Because I was morbidly obese and I had dangerously high blood pressure. And it didn't work. Frothy emotional appeal doesn't work. That's what the doctor's opinion tells me. In fact, after my mother-in-law left, I was pissed at her. How dare you? How dare you come here and tell me that, right? Um, and I ate, I ate, you know, and I was angry at her for a long time. And now looking back, I think, my God, it must have taken her all her like, all her like energies to get up the nerve to give me this talking to, right? Um, but I didn't see it like that back then. And it doesn't suffice, right? What actually works? Not when we sit across the table and tell other people that they're killing themselves, but when we sit across the table and tell people, I was killing myself and I'm not anymore, right? And I'm here and I'm alive. So that's the only thing that works for people like us, right? That's what works for us. Okay, now um, at the bottom of XXVIII, it says that we drink essentially because we like the effect produced by alcohol, right? So I like to eat or I eat not because I'm a foodie, right? Not because I love food. 
it's not because I like the taste and it's not because I like the flavor, not for the texture, not for the presentation, none of that. Why do I eat? Why did I eat? Because I got a hit. I got a buzz off of food. I got high off of eating. And I, you know, and here's the thing, right? It says that, that it's elusive. And while we admit it is injurious, we cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So I get this hit off of food and I can actually feel it before I've even taken a bite. I actually would start to feel almost intoxicated by food as a little kid on the bus home from school, knowing there was something waiting that I was gonna get. The level of excitement building up inside me, couldn't hear my friends talking to me on the bus, right? Couldn't even focus on that. I was already in my kitchen. I was already in my kitchen in the cupboards, right? So just knowing something good was waiting for me at home would almost get me through the day. Like that was the fuel that would kind of force me through the rest of the day. And that sensation that I get when I take a bite of something, this effect, this thing that I get, it is, it escapes me. It eludes me. It doesn't last long. And even though it's hurting me, I can't tell what's true and what's not true because it seems normal to eat the way that I was eating. It seemed normal to binge the way that I was binging. And when you're living that way, what is normal is not what's normal, right? My normal was not normal, but it was my normal. It seemed normal. Um, you know, and when I didn't eat, right? So if I didn't eat, if I refrained from it, I would get restless, irritable, and discontent. And what that means to me is I felt internally itchy. Like I had an itch inside me and I couldn't scratch it. Um, and here's what would happen, right? And this next part really explains the addiction cycle. And I say, you know, for me, it's not just a cycle, it's more of a spiral, right? So I would succumb, I would get uncomfortable. Something would make me uncomfortable. I could be happy and that would make me uncomfortable. I could be upset, that could make me uncomfortable. It could be Friday and I would get uncomfortable. It could be Monday and I could get uncomfortable. And it would build up inside me. This discomfort would build up and I would give in. I would succumb to the desire, right? And, you know, here's the thing. I would look at other people. By the way, other people use food when they're restless, irritable, and discontent, right? That's why, you know, they give little kids a lollipop after they, you know, after they get a, a shot. Here's a lollipop because it makes you feel better, right? 
you know, it's, we, people get upset that, you know, you break up, you go for an ice cream, right? Normal people do that. Um, but they don't have the punitive aspect of it. They don't trigger an allergy. So they get restless, irritable, discontent. They succumb, they eat it and their craving gets met. But what happened for me is my craving would start, right? And it would just, it would ramp up. Um, other people eat, they might even overeat, but they certainly stopped way before I do. And for me, once I eat, then I begin craving, which means I can't stop. And for me, it might take me a very long time to emerge remorseful, right? So what I would say here is I have never binged. I have never binged and said, ah, that hit the spot. I have never had an ice cream cone and said, oh, that was great. That was it. Now I feel satisfied. When I say is what makes me distinct is I've got a spot that can't be hit. Can't get ease and satisfaction. It's it's an insatiable desire. And so I would, be, I would start craving and I would binge. And my binges, they only ended for me when I gave in and I ate and I was off on a spree. I always emerged. When I did, it was always remorseful. And the only way that my binging ever got interrupted right? Ever stopped. It was never on my own choice. Never. I was either sick, physically so sick, I couldn't stop. Right. I would run out. Right. That was the other thing. I couldn't physically, for whatever reason, did not have access to getting anymore. So I would run out of whatever I was eating and I couldn't get to it. Or three, the way that it would normally happen is I would get interrupted someone would interrupt me and that would be how it would stop. So I never emerged remorseful on my own, right? It would have to be through like complete like humiliation and pain. And what would happen for me is because this disease progresses and you probably, if you have what I have, perhaps you can relate, my binges got longer. They required more food, they happened more frequently. And the times I emerged remorseful became fewer and farther in between. Mm -hmm. So that in the end, it wasn't a spiral, it wasn't a cycle. It wasn't like I got, you know, itchy, irritable discontent. I ate, I was off on a spree, right? I, I ate and ate and ate. I emerged remorseful, firm resolution to stop, right? What would happen for me is it began to be like a spiral. So that at the end, my life felt like a black dot. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't get out of it. You know, and, and what happens is if you're living in a spiral, you can't get out of it on your own human power. I was powerless to that. I could not break it. I couldn't break out of the spiral. But here's the really good news, right? On XXIX, it says, on the other hand, thank God there's another hand. Because on the other hand, 
strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. The clear directions that you're gonna get, right? Those few simple rules. So thank God there's another hand because otherwise we would be stuck in that spiral forever. And I am not in that spiral anymore. And neither is many of you that are sitting here right now. You're not in the spiral anymore. How did you get out? What was necessary to get you out? Couldn't do it on your own power. What was necessary was a psychic change, right? And I'd say almost like a brain transplant. That's what a psychic change is. A brand new personality, a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at life. And when we have this, you know, we have this psychic change, this new personality, this brain transplant, we're easily able to control our desire. Now, not because I got stronger than a desire, right? I thought Overeaters Anonymous was going to teach me how to get a strong cage. You were going to show me how to get stronger than this desire. But we actually have something better than that, far better than that. The reason why it's easily controlled is because the desire got removed. I mean, that's incredible. If you're sitting here and you are like white knuckling it, you are saying, please, I just hope I can go to bed tonight one more night abstinent. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. That's why we're here for you because we've got something better to offer. That when these steps are done, correctly, right, thoroughly, the desire gets removed. I do not desire those things. I don't sit on the bus on the way home from anywhere, dreaming about what's in my cupboard ever, ever. It's never, it, and it's just been removed. It was done to me, not by me. You know, um, I'd say this is the part where the spiral gets unrolled, it just opens up. It's not a spiral anymore. Okay, now it says that many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. That's what it says on XXIX. So what we're gonna be doing, this work, these 12 steps, it's not ordinary psychological approach. I have nothing bad to say about psychology. Psychology is wonderful. Therapy is awesome. Therapy is great. I have, I have utilized therapists for many different situations in my life. Doesn't work for my food addiction. Never worked for my food addiction. This program is not a psychological approach. We're not gonna like sit and, and analyze ourselves, right? With an it's not analysis. It's action. So we don't respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Therapy is wonderful. Therapy is great. Got nothing against therapists, but it never worked for compulsive overeating. 
it's just not the solution for this particular problem. It's like taking the wrong medication. Psychological approaches, they tend to look at the why. Oftentimes, psychology looks at the why. And why I have this problem, it's a mystery. And it's inconsequential information. I might find out why it won't give me the required power. It won't give me an experience with power. Asking why for me, I would say where this problem is concerned, when I ask why, it's spiritual immaturity. It's saying I had a better plan than you, God, and I don't like your plan. That's really what I'm saying when, I'm, when I ask, why do I have this? Why did I get this? And really, for me, I was always looking to assign blame. Let me figure out who did this to me. And therefore, I can spend the rest of my life blaming them and never take any action, right? And yeah, guess what? Lots of people in our lives mess up. Yep. So what? So what? Unless you're going to get in a time machine and undo your past, now what are we going to do about it is the better question. Um, and really, when I ask why, it really means I don't like it. When I say, why do I have to do that? It means I don't want to do that, right? Um, so on XX, X, on X, I'm never good with these Roman numerals. On XXX, it says, oh, actually right at the bottom. It talks about the phenomenon of craving, that it, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests. So that phenomenon of craving dominates me, becomes the most important thing. And I cannot use my mental control to overcome it. And I wind up, says here, we sacrifice everything because I cannot fight this allergic response that I have. You know, um, when I read about people making the ultimate sacrifice, right? That it says here, they are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And that supreme sacrifice that they're talking about is your life, sacrificing your life. Now that might sound melodramatic for compulsive overeaters, but really, it really isn't. It's just a slower form of suicide, but it's suicide, right? It's suicide nonetheless. And I would say for me, you know, I made the supreme sacrifice in, in measured increments, right? Every time I would say it was almost like I was amputating my life. I was cutting off pieces of what it means to be alive little by little. So that at the end, I had all this wonderful things on the outside, but I was living my life 
looking outside the window, like inside, looking outside of what other people were doing. And I was sacrificing my life. So what did that look like for me? Every time I canceled going someplace, I was cutting off another piece of my life. I was living less, right? Every time I didn't show up for a place for my kids, because I was embarrassed. Every time I couldn't get on the floor, right? And get up off the floor with my students, with my own children. I was cutting off, I was making the supreme sacrifice. I was living and I wasn't alive, right? And, and so that's, to me, that's what it talks about. So that by the end, you know, my last binge, I remembered thinking, I feel like I'm dying. I, I think I might be dying. And the next thought that came in my brain was, I think I'm supposed to care, you know, because that's the supreme sacrifice. We stop really caring about what it means to even be alive. So, and there's nothing I can do about that, right? Once I eat, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, on page XXX, now we're going to talk about the classification of the alcoholics. It seems the most difficult. Right. And so these classifications, they're going to talk about the psychopath. And in this, in the text here, the psychopath is emotionally unstable. That was me. I've always been told growing up that I was overly emotional. Right. I was overly remorseful. My nickname, my mother called me Desdemona. That was my nickname because I always had like a oh, a poor me story, like a, a story. It was always like, there was always, I would come home from school every day. There would be like this new story. And I was, I was the victim of the story or I was the great tragic hero in every story. I was full of all this overly emotionalism. You know, and the second type they talk about here is a type unwilling to admit that he can take a bite. So for me, what did that look like? You know, it says he was always changing his brand. This. For me, I was always changing a diet. Unwilling to admit that I had a real problem, I was always changing it. I was Atkins, I was all natural, I was organic, I was weight, always changing it, right? And then the third type, it says that after a period of abstinence, they can suddenly control, right? They're drinking, they're eating. And that's never been true for me. No matter how long I'm abstinent, if I begin to ingest my alcoholic foods or I begin to engage in alcoholic food behaviors, I will not be able to control it. I've had years of data to prove that. Um, and number four, it says here, the manic depressive, up and down and up and down and up and down. And for me, it was normally, my up and down were normally attached to what size I was, right? I always thought I was happy if I was thin. I was sad if I was heavy. I was, it wasn't really true that that was a lie because a lot of times I was just as miserable, if not more miserable when I was like trying not to eat, right? Just trying not to eat. Um, up and down and up and down. Um, and then there's the type entirely normal in every respect, 
except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, and friendly. And I think, you know, um, everybody likes to think they're that type. <laughs> Entirely normal, right? I just want to be like, yes, let, let me think that. And I think, you know what, in Overeaters Anonymous, this disease can hide out. It's really good at hiding out and making it look like you're quite normal, right? And yet we're really not, right? I, I surely wasn't. And so I also think that I wore the hat of all those different types. On any given day, I was any one of those types. But here's the next thing that I think is the most important part is that all of these, no matter what classification you find yourself, have one symptom in common that they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. But that's what we've got in common. You can't start eating without developing the craving. And this phenomenon, this thing that we have, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. So that's what I think is crucial, that we are a distinct entity. It tells me that right here, different and different from other people. And what I always think is a really good um, like visual to do is um, I always take like, I do this a lot with sponsees and with others, is I take a piece of paper and I fold it in half. And I make a crease, a really, you know, a really clear crease in that because it says here, there's never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So I'm different, right? I take that piece of paper and I fold it in half and I am different than other people. Remember, I'm a distinct entity. That's what it says here. It sets us apart and differentiates us and sets us apart as a distinct entity. So here, I'm gonna read the list for me. When I make that crease, what it is that I have, what makes me distinct. One, I can be both competent and hopeless. We found that out right in the beginning, competent and hopeless. Two, working with others is how we get well and stay well. That's different from other people out there. They don't have to help other people if they've got some sort of an ailment in order to get well from it. Three, I've exhausted every other method, right? If I'm different and distinct, it means that I have tried lots and lots of methods and I've exhausted them. Four, my body is abnormal have an abnormal body. Five, what makes me different and distinct is I must constantly think of others. I have to be altruistic. If I'm going to get well, if I'm gonna live well, I have to think of other people. Six, I need to have tight parameters around my food. That's what it means to be a compulsive overeater in recovery, right? I don't eat, for me, I don't make spontaneous snap decisions about food. I don't just eat what I feel like whenever I feel like eating it. Seven, 
I must live by spiritual principles. I have to live a life where my life is based on spiritual principles. Eight, I have a code. That's what we're told here. If I'm different, distinct, what sets me apart from other people is I need to live by a certain code. And my code is love and tolerance. That's the code. It says it in the book that love and tolerance is our code. It's not just mine. That's not my line. That's the line from the book. And what does that mean? It means that I don't live by fair and unfair, right? I have to be entirely honest. Here's the next thing that makes me different and distinct. I must be entirely honest in order to live well and happily. And I can't live within the boundaries of my own knowledge. That's another thing that makes me distinct, that I need to have a relationship with God so that I can take the things that I know and live in agreement with them. I can't do it on my own power. Another thing that makes me distinct is I experience the phenomenon of craving. I have a severe allergy, makes me different from other people. Another thing that makes me different and distinct is I have a mind that tells me I don't have this allergy, right? Can you imagine if you had an allergy to shellfish? You're not, you're not part of this club necessarily because you don't have a mind that tells you to go ahead and eat lobster or tells you it'll be okay this time, right? You can get away with it this time. But I've got this mind that tells me this time it'll be okay, right? Or it tells me I'm making too big a deal about it. Or in the worst times, it tells me that I don't even care. Who cares? So what I'm going to binge? You don't even care, right? So because I'm different and distinct, and it sets me apart from other people, it means I can't treat food like normal people. Food can be tasty. I can like it but it can't be my source of recreation. It can't be the focus of what I do, right? Another thing that makes me distinct is you can't appeal to me from frothy emotion, right? That's not how you're gonna get through to me. And that's good to bear in mind if you're a sponsor and you're speaking to newcomers, try your best as much as possible to not tell other people right? From an emotional standpoint, don't beg other people. Don't tell them that they're going to die if they don't do this, right? Tell them that you are going to die if you don't do this. Um, what else makes me distinct is only a message of depth and weight can help me. Only that kind of a message. And another thing that makes me distinct is I have to self-diagnose no one else can diagnose anybody here. I cannot look at any one of you and claim that you're a compulsive overeater. The diagnosis must come from within. You must make the diagnosis yourself. And I think the best part of what makes me distinct is in order to get well, I must have an experience with the miraculous. I must have an experience with God with a higher power. I must have a miracle. I am here because I require a miracle, a miracle of healing. 
So now if you creased that paper, flatten it out now, open it up. And you might look like you're a normal weight. You might be living in recovery a really long time, but that crease can never be eradicated. It doesn't go away. So we can recover. But what it means for me when I say I've recovered, it means that I am happy, joyous, and free on that side of the page. I'm not interested in hanging out on the other side of the page anymore, right? I know where I belong. I know where I belong. That for me is what it means to be recovered. Um, and so long as I stay where I belong, I'm not really interested in the food. It doesn't call to me, right? Um, you know, so if you are different, distinct, it means that you are recognizably different in nature from something else of a similar type. Readily distinguishable, so clearly apparent as to be unmistakable. That's what it means, right? Now, here's the problem is, Many of us, when we start looking like we might not have this anymore, people forget and they think that they can hang out on the other side of the page. And what I wanna say is that um, if you're relying on your memory, that's a mental defense. So even today, I'm not utilizing my memory because my memory fails to keep me in check. Remember what makes me distinct is that I must work with others. And the only way that we get immunity is through helping other people. So I, I might talk to you about my memories of what it was like, but it's not my memories that keep me in check. It's the working with others, right? It's the work that we do with other people. You know, so what's the solution, right? If I know I can't stop once I start and I can't keep myself from starting again, then I know I need a psychic change. And I know I can't give myself the needed change. So what do I do then? Well, the doctor's opinion is gonna give us two examples of doomed people who have experienced miracles of healing. And the purpose of that, I would say, is to pique your curiosity, is for you to say, wait a second, how do I get me one of those miracles? How can I get one of those miracles? You know, the first one talks about, he had a gastric hemorrhage, pathological mental deterioration, lost everything worthwhile in life and said that he was hopeless, believed he was hopeless. He put down the alcohol and followed the plan in this book the clear directions, he followed the directions. He went from trembling, despairing, nervous wreck and emerged self-reliant and content. And he didn't even seem like the same person at all. And this is my personal experience too. I was beaten down. I was in terrible physical shape. You know, at the end of it for me, I couldn't make eye contact. I was so crushed by what had happened to me. I was humiliated and I was terrified and filled with anxiety. And that's not who I am today, right? That is not the woman that, that sits here before you today. 
you know, the next one discussed made his own diagnosis and determined that he was hopeless. And this is actually a prerequisite for recovery. So if you're sitting here right now saying to yourself, I'm hopeless, good. You're in the right spot. You're in the right condition. Good. Let go of your hope, right? This is actually a prerequisite for recovering. He was determined to die, but was rescued and desperate. And following his physical rehabilitation, meaning he was cleaned out of the alcohol, thought that this wouldn't work. He said, this isn't going to work. His problems were so complex. His depression was so great, but he became sold on the ideas and he was completely transformed. And that's what happened to me. I got sold on these ideas, right? And I was changed. You know, I love the very end of the doctor's opinion. I love this part. It says, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through. And though perhaps he came to stop, he may remain to pray. And so, you know, the doctor's opinion says, great, read this book, even if your intention is to ridicule, but you might wind up praying. You might just wind up praying. And I think that's true for many of us. We come in here annoyed, somewhat laughing, right? I know I came in here like, Ugh, really? Really? You're going to talk to me about God? What? Um, but we do wind up becoming people who pray. That is what happens. You know, we come here scoffing. That's why there's a whole chapter written for people like, like the scoffers. That's what we agnostics is about. But if you notice, by the way, I'm just going to put this little pitch in. We agnostics comes before the directions, right? Because in order for us to really get sold on this ideas, we have to embrace that we're going to need something. We've got to at least humble ourselves enough to start praying. And so um, with that, I will pass. Hey, Trish.